Hello there, my name is Paul Kearney. I am Professor of Politics and Public Policy at the University of Stirling. And this is chapter 12. How much impact can you expect from your analysis? Okay, so we're almost there. You can probably tell by the kind of giddy nature of my voice now. Okay, so this chapter says that um, policy analysts cannot expect to influence policymakers routinely, even if they follow uh, policy analysis texts and the five steps to the letter. So it builds on other chapters. You know, if you go back to chapter three, this was about the old and new stories about analysts. You know, it used to be that they had a kind of captive audience at the center of government. Now there are many of them competing with each other, you know, so they can't, they can't uh, expect any kind of impact at all, simply from following these steps. It also connects to wider research on things like the, the impact of policy research so Carol Weiss uh, is the kind of classic source of study of the role of research or evidence in, in policymaking and evaluation. And, uh, you know, role can range from informing policymakers directly uh, or serving as a kind of long-term enlightenment or simply to be used to bolster a case already made or, or sometimes policymakers just perform the sense that they're using evidence without really uh, actually... Um, using it in a, in a meaningful way. Okay, so this chapter, you know, in that context, explores the extent to which analysts might want to go further to secure their proposed policy solutions if they can't expect much impact. Now, I should say, uh, most of the talks I give are about academics who tend to expect a limited, direct, short-term impact, or, or I certainly do, and so I talk about that a lot in uh, many different podcasts and recordings on the, the website. So again, look for the page that says EBPM and scroll down. And then look for the ANTSOG lectures, uh, many of which were recorded in audio and uh, PowerPoint. Okay, so they really go into uh, what academics could do if they could learn from policy studies about how to make an impact. So a lot of that is relevant. But probably policy analysts would want to go further. They, they, they can't rely on the kind of long-term and mild impact that academics tend to seek, uh, particularly if analysts are seeking to change the world. Okay, so in that context, I start talking about this idea of a ladder of ethical engagement to have much more short-term impact. And the ladder comes from this... Um, metaphor that I would associate with Hieronymus Bosch. So he painted this thing called the Garden of Earthly Delights and and one part of it uh, essentially there's a ladder going into someone's rear end. I couldn't honestly tell you why but it just gives you this sense that the more you go up each rung the closer you are getting to the kind of the dirty business of, of politics. You know so it's a bit disgusting but you know it's worth looking up. Um, okay, so just keep that image in mind, you know, the safe option is at the bottom of the ladder. Now, uh, the, you know, the, the safest option in terms of policy theories would be what we call, you know, step one. It's really wrong one, I suppose, uh, which is change levels of attention to issues, not minds. Now, this takes us back to the narrative policy framework, uh, for which there's a separate podcast and 500 word series. And it suggests, at least my interpretation of this work, is that people use stories to, to make an impact on their audience. But the most impact is on audiences who are already predisposed to accept that story. 
So really, this is not changing hearts and minds. This is about uh, motivating people to act on the basis of reinforcing their beliefs. And it also ties to the discussion we had of Riker and her aesthetic about increasing the salience of one belief at the expense of another, rather than asking people to change their minds. Okay, so that's, that's, that's a kind of reasonably challenging thing that seems realistic. Um, but then we've got more challenging options, uh, including step two. Now, this is based on advocacy coalition framework. And again, each of these concepts has its own podcast. But it, it suggests that people enter politics to turn their beliefs into policy. And if those policy issues are highly salient, then, then people, uh, they, they form coalitions with people who, who share their beliefs. They romanticise their own cause and they demonise their opponents. And this kind of activity extends to the use of evidence and policy analysis. Each coalition demands different evidence or interprets the same evidence differently to support their own cause. So, in a sense, one coalition might accept your analysis wholeheartedly and the other might ignore it or reject it. So step two is to exploit that. Uh, engage only with actors and coalitions who share your beliefs. Now step three uh, is about, uh, I call that exercising power to limit debate and dominate policymaker attention. Now this ties to public uh, punctuated equilibrium theory, which talks about disproportionate information processing. In, another, in other words, uh, policymakers can only pay attention to a small number of issues and they have to ignore the rest. So they, it's disproportionate each time, disproportionately high to a small number, disproportionately low to most. Okay, so uh, that suggests higher levels of attention by many people might contribute to policy change, major policy change, while minim minimal attention might contribute to stability and um, a continuity or minor change. Now, I think a lot of researchers respond to that by thinking, okay, I, I better secure the highest possible attention for my issue to encourage debate and exhort policymakers to do the right thing, given the evidence. Now, the alternative in step three is to take a different direction based on the idea that there's better value from low attention. Uh, so a lot of uh, these kinds of studies show how policy actors frame issues to limit external attention. If they can define a problem uh, successfully as having been solved, then they can describe it as, you know, only the technical details remain and only certain experts are, are um, relevant. So they can privilege attention to their evidence at the expense of other people. If so, they would be building on insights from studies of networks and policy communities, which are, you know, relationships between policymakers and influencers, which are about uh, gaining inclusion within networks by following the rules of the game. And if you're successful, you can insulate that process and, and exclude most other people. Okay. Now, step four is right up there at the business end, and it relates to social construction and policy design. So there's quite a few, there's, there's quite a few uh, po uh, posts and a, and a podcast on this one. And if you remember, that suggests that when they deal with salient issues, policymakers tend to exploit social stereotypes, either strategically or based on their own emotions. And when they exploit those stereotypes, they identify target populations as you know, negatively and deserving of government punishment or positively and deserving of government benefits. And the point of that is that some populations are powerful enough 
to exploit the rewards of that uh, stereotype or to challenge how they're portrayed. But, but most populations do not have the power to respond. And in fact, many social groups become alienated, disenchanted with politics because they are punished by governments and excluded from debate. Now, step four involves framing evidence to be consistent with the way that your audience thinks about target populations. One of the most effective ways to frame analysis may be to make it completely sympathetic to a client that, that uh, deals with negative stereotypes of target populations. Okay, now I should put this in sort of uh, metaphorical neon lights or flashing lights. I'm not suggesting for a second that you do any of those things. The main role of these discussions is to expose uh, the assumptions we make and the things that we're willing to do to make sure that the evidence wins the day in, in policy analysis, the lengths to which we're willing to go. Okay, so imagine you take from policy studies that the most effective ways to privilege research evidence or policy analysis evidence is to manipulate how people make choices, refuse to engage in debate with competitors, uh, frame issues to minimise attention and to maximise the connection between your evidence and the, the rhetoric of cynical politicians. Now, that might help you gain the most attention and support for your policy analysis, but it may come at uh, too high a cost. Or it, it just exposes these stark ethical dilemmas re regarding the relationship between how you do policy analysis and how you think about democracy. So put another way, the most effective strategies might be at the expense of democratic principles and participatory or co-produced policy making. So they, they prompt us to consider the extent to which we value research evidence uh, and to go or we you know go to uh, great lengths to do something about it. Or if we also prefer these more co-productive strategies to privileged participation over, you know, uh, expertise. Now, the, uh, I might just kind of exaggerate a little bit, but the final sentence says that this, this approach is a bit more honest and realistic than the common story you'll find within scientific circles, that scientific policy analysis is the antidote to populist or dysfunctional politics. Uh, there are many different antidotes to dysfunctional politics and the privileging of a narrow sense of scientific information is, is only one of them.